This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Survivors are not the only victims when it comes to a crime. Hey everybody, welcome to Crime Over Cocktails. I'm Tiffany, your host, and today I'm with my guest, Sean. Hello, thank you for having me on. Yes, thank you for being here. You know, it's so interesting because I'm not sure if you've listened to any of my past episodes, but I do have a lot of survivors on the show. And I thought this would be a really cool addition. Because you are on the other side of that. Yes, on the on the on the partner side, not on the other other side. Yeah, um, <laughs> just want to clarify for your listeners that you know we're not we're not getting into those kinds of weeds because uh, yeah, that's uh, no. But I am a I am a partner of a survivor. My wife, um, when two weeks into our relationship, we started dating. We've been friends for four years. And two years into us, or I mean, two weeks into us actually kind of making it official and that we were starting to date, uh, she got assaulted by a friend of hers, quote, a friend, um, who she had known. And it had actually been like a pretty significant person in her life for about three years. Um, she had known he uh, and his wife. Uh, they were at a they were at the kind of the center of this very large friend group. Um, and they it come to find out he had assaulted six or seven other women in the friend group. And so this was right at the beginning of our relationship. And it obviously drops a pretty large bomb on the survivor. And it just shatters their life in so many ways. It's such a holistic attack on somebody's humanity. And I think that I just got to see it up close and personal for, you know, right away and then was just in the trenches the whole time, shoulder to shoulder, going through the recovery process, uh, seeing it kind of firsthand. And I, um, we kind of got to the other side of the recovery process, which we would say is, you know, it's never really done, but you do get to a place, um, at least in my experience with this, uh, the survivor gets to a place where they feel back, you know, in some ways that it's like, you know, they're able to trust again. They're able to have intimacy. They're able to not wake up in a panic, you know, triggering events are fewer and farther between. And so once you get to a place, and I think that this is, you know, an individual journey, I think it's up to each individual to kind of assess what that means for them. But my wife and I, we got to a place where she felt uh, pretty healed. And we just started asking questions and having conversations about like, what did I do that was good? What did I do that was bad? What did I do that should have never been done? Like, what were some of the big mistakes that I made? And in the healing process and really just trying to analyze, like, what kind of role did I have? And um, yeah, it just kind of pieced it all together. And it it really showed me that I played a really significant role I started looking for resources, trying to understand, like, are there other people out there that have had this similar idea about trying to help partners? Because I was looking for resources at the beginning and couldn't find any. But, you know, it had been, you know, kind of five years after the fact when I had kind of finished my kind of tool that I wanted to give to the world. And there still just wasn't a lot. And so, yeah, it's just been a journey to try to help as many people as possible understand this very dynamic role that you take on as a partner and how important it is to really understand what you're getting into uh, with a survivor, whether it's they just got assaulted and they're in the acute phase or they've been abused many years ago and they're just, and it's coming up in your relationship. And so I just kind of wanted to make a tool for people that, you know, we could have a conversation about how important it is. I feel like it's a, 
it's a really important subject. And so, yeah, that's what we're out here doing. So I appreciate the opportunity to come on and then kind of offer your audience just maybe a little bit of a different perspective into this conversation. No, I love that. And obviously, you must have did a really good job because she married you. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I like to. I like to think so. Uh, you know, I, it, it definitely. She she's the one going through it. So I mean, I married her. So I mean, she she really uh, she really did a lot. And the survivor, you know, uh, shout out to all the survivors out there going through it. it it's not easy, and you know, the, all the work is really on them in order to get through it for themselves. But you know, hopefully, if there's any partners out there listening, then you know, hopefully this conversation will mean something and, and, and give you a little bit more, you know, resources and uh, kind of understanding and, and, and how to approach the role you might have in front of you. Right. And so many times it is somebody that you know. It's somebody that you're comfortable with. It's somebody who's in your group or lives on your street or might go to the same church, which is very scary. Yeah. I That was one of the biggest kind of eye-opening things when I got into this because I feel like society does this really weird thing, which is it creates this idea in our head about what the boogeyman, like assaulter, predator is. And it, it always tends to go towards the, you know, stranger lurking in the shadows, stalking you at night, you know, jumping out when you least expect it. And not that that doesn't occur. But statistically, what is far more likely is that it is somebody that you know, that you're acquainted with, whether it's in some sort of like ancillary group that you might have just met or all the way to somebody that is supposed to be someone you can trust, like, you know, in the case of all the priests or coaches or teachers or parents, brothers, grandfathers, right? Like those are the people that are statistically the most likely to create this type of abuse and, you know, your intimate partner, uh, friends and that kind of a thing where you've let them into your trust circle, you know, you've let them into the, uh, into your inner circle and, and you've let your guards down. And, you know, that's just such an unfortunate statistic of this and truth that I think we need to pop because we think that it's like, Oh, we got, Detective Stabler and Olivia out there, you know, fighting this crime against all these strangers that are, you know, lurking in the shadows when, you know, really, unfortunately, in reality is our justice system is broken and, you know, the predator might be already in your house, you know, like it's just that's the that's the scary thing about this. And um, so that's ultimately why, you know, part of what I do is to, you know, kind of shout this from the rooftops and try to bring a little bit of a different perspective to this conversation uh, and not put all of the weight on the survivors having to scream, you know, believe us, but there needs to be other people out there being like, Hey, it, it's on us to help educate the community about what is really going on here. Uh, not only from the recovery side, but also from the, you know, kind of prevention and, you know, intervention side of, you know, allowing us to really know what's going on. Right. So you said he was married? He was, yeah. Did his wife know he was doing this? Um, no, not to the extent of like abuse and assault. No. Uh, you know, this this was in Seattle. There's a little bit more of a progressive vibe. Um, so there was, you know, kind of a open situation that was kind of had, but he was using a self-diagnosis of Asperger's, which I don't actually think he had. It was more so he was trying to cover up a lot of the like sociopathic behavior of grooming, boundary breaking type of behaviors where he would, you know, upon first meeting somebody, he would just grab their phone out of their hand and check their schedule and schedule him into their calendar and put his contact information in their phone, call his phone with their contact information. So it was like, he wasn't even like asking for people's information. He would just like take it and, and cross these boundaries a lot. And his wife was kind of conditioned to be step in and make people feel comfortable 
by going, oh, he's got Asperger's, so please forgive this type of behavior, even though there was no clinical diagnosis of that. Um, it was really just something he had conditioned her with. So she then kind of conditioned everybody else in the friend group to kind of accept that type of behavior, which is really unfortunate because a lot of people got hurt uh, because of it. Right. So did it take your wife to come forward for other people to come forward? Was Were they all before her or do you know the yeah. timeline with that? Yeah, it was. So what was really um, unfortunate really about this whole scenario was, well, a lot was unfortunate there. But the weird timing that was on this was that the big friend group was literally unbeknownst to my wife, they had already planned an intervention to sit down with him and talk about this inappropriate behavior that had been going on. A lot of girls had said something. A lot of the guys who were partners of these girls were starting to kind of key in to like, you know, kind of the gig was up, right? He he was doing all this behavior for long enough that, you know, I think over a span of two years and finally some people had had enough, they were going to, you know, kind of corner him. And again, because he had had this self-diagnosis of Asperger's, there was this kind of not typical way of approaching it. People were like, yeah, he's got this, you know, kind of disability. So let's approach it in a different way. Let's sit down as a group and kind of address this. And maybe we can actually work on getting him to change this behavior. So they were, they had planned this intervention. I think what happened was that he was aware that this was going to take place. And so it kind of was like, this is the last hurrah. And what is really disgusting about the way that he ended up assaulting my wife was that that night she had gotten bit by her Siberian Husky because its tail had gotten caught as they were walking into their apartment complex, the big door at the front lobby, uh, like a big gust of wind came and like shut the door on, on the dog's tail. And so it just lashed out because of the pain and it bit her in the thigh. So she's, you know, had these two huge fang puncture marks on her leg swells up to the size of a grapefruit. She's bleeding. They're both laying on the lobby floor in pain. And, uh, you know, she was supposed to go over to dinner with them. She calls and says, Hey, I've had this really big dog bite. And he tries to convince her to come over so that he can help take care of her. So he comes over she goes back over to dinner. They sit down and have a dinner. She's in a lot of pain. So she asked to go home early. He takes her home and is like, Hey, let me come up and help you, you know, clean the wound and bandage it as a friend would do. And, uh, then he insulted her like while she was like, while he was like trying to bandage her leg, he just assaulted her while in the middle of like, she's got all this crazy pain and was just like, it was just nuts. And so that led to her reaching out to the entire friend group to tell them what had happened, calling his wife, telling him what happened. And then she was like, this is it. Once she found out that all these other women in the friend group had had a similar kind of experience in various different ways, but she reached out and was like, okay, this is going to be the last one. So we went and filed criminal and civil charges. Six, seven girls came forward in the friend group to file the criminal charge. We went through the entire legal process. And uh, it was a, just an absolute nightmare. And it was completely <laughs> like the the justice system is completely broken in so many ways when it approaches this issue. And so you're just left to kind of pick up the pieces. And it's so sad because I think in the cultural conversation that kind of happened around, you know, this kind of rise of the Me Too movement and it kind of became into it kind of popped through the zeitgeist that this was a that this was a real issue that people were tired with and fed up with and that there were so many survivors coming forward with their stories but the public conversation was always around like well why didn't you go through the legal system you know the big question you know all this victim blaming stuff where it's like you didn't do all these a b and c you know all the way to z to be jump through all these hoops so that we actually believe you and what happened to you and you know being somebody that was right there next to a person going through this, doing everything that is supposedly supposed to happen, checking all the boxes, talking to the cops, going through, talking to the victim assault advocates, filing civil 
suits, filing criminal suits, getting all the evidence and the testimonies and everything that you're supposed to do. And then to have the entire justice system let you down, realize that it's just nothing but a traumatizing experience over and over and over for the survivors while, you know, the abuser is presumed innocent while the survivors are liars right out of the gate until they can prove that they're telling the truth is just, it's just an absolute nightmare when it comes to this issue. Like our justice system just does not adequately approach dealing with this. I mean, at every single level from the coldness of the police officers taking the reports to the bias of, you know, just in the tone of voice and the fact that they're just, they don't really care. Like, it's so weird. It's such a, it, it's not what we're conditioned to when we watch TV and there's people that are like, oh, these cops that are like empathetic and trying to get to the root and get the bad guys off the street. Like that just does not, it was not our experience. I'm not saying that's how it is all the time, but it just was not our experience. And you go to the courtroom and you're sitting, It there's no bailiff. There's no authority in there to like make survivors feel safe because there's this predator and this monster there and you're sitting in the same pew as the abuser like oh, i could have reached out and put hands on this dude and there's no cops around like my uh brother-in-law who's a marine we we're sitting in the pews right behind this guy and i'm like from every angle this is wrong you know like from the survivor and protecting them it's wrong the passion that's involved in the anger that is there, he's sitting in front of us. And here are two military veterans sitting behind this guy with trying to just have as much self-restraint as we can so that we don't do something incredibly stupid that we might regret. Like it puts their lives in danger too. It's just like it, it was broken from every single angle. And, you know, the survivor, it was just so traumatizing over and over and over. It was just a nightmare. I hear that a lot. Unfortunately, the justice system is so far fucked. It really is. And I think we can all agree on that. That's definitely one thing that I'm hoping to help change some way in my journey here, but enough is enough. And um, I'm over it just like everybody else. Why should they be re-victimized over and over and over again? For sure. From the jump, too. It's like, you know, why at this day and age with the technology that we have, with the understanding that is around this issue, how prevalent it is, the statistics of it, you know, it's in the conversation around the fact that here's here's what I find to be just mind blowing is that police already come forward and say, we're overworked. The expectation that the police force has to solve every single issue that society has, because we've put it all on their plate. We take all this tax money, right? Just for example, like LA County, they've spent over a billion dollars just on their police force and tax revenue. And, you know, without getting too far into the weeds of what, what it goes to is like, how is it that we can't take some of that money Put it towards a mental health program that addresses these types of issues head on. It shouldn't be some rookie cop showing up to the door of some survivor who's just gotten, who's just woken up from a night of, you know, drug induced horror and have to talk to a rookie cop. That's just not, that's just not the look. You know what I mean? That's just not how we as society should be approaching this because it's, it doesn't make sense why we couldn't just have a specialized, you know, even if it's, you know, even if it's privatized, having some van with like a team of like, you know, two or three nurses that could come and like help somebody out in the event that this happens, collect all of the evidence that they would need uh, in a more compassionate way that isn't so sterile, having to sit in an emergency room after some trauma that has just happened to you. Like, but have it handled with care and then literally process that information in those kits so that we don't end up with hundreds of thousands of them sitting in some warehouse while trolls online think that if you don't get the rape kit done, you shouldn't be believed. It's just, it, it's nuts that this whole system is 
so broken around this issue. What I've noticed is the survivors literally have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they did it, even though you could have everything in front. You could have text messages, you could have video, you could, and they're still going to try to find ways around it. It's, I don't understand. <laughs> right. I, I don't. I, I, I completely agree. And it was like, you know, Brock Turner case, that dude from Stanford that was caught by two eyewitnesses doing what he did to this girl who's passed out behind a dumpster. And then the judge just sentences him to six months. He serves only three of it and gets out on quote, good behavior. And it's like, how is that how our society reacts when there's mandatory minimum sentences for like smoking weed and like having like literally a victimless crime. If you get caught with a bag of weed, you do more time than this guy who literally just sentenced this girl to a life of trauma. What? Like it just, I, it, it really is. It pushes me towards that one, you know, moment of that movie, the network where that guy's just like, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Right? Like it just pushes you to this limit where you're just like, how, how are we all sitting around? You know, like I know there's so many issues and I know that I'm, I'm pretty myopic on this one because it has such an impact on my life, but I know there's, you know, a lot of attention on a lot of different issues. But this was, this is one when I started doing the research, you know, and it took me five years to write this book because it was just, there's just so much. And, uh, you know, I was trying to, I was trying to approach it the best way that I could, but it was the area of sexual violence is so vast. Like there's so many different variables to it. There's so many different, you know, situations and circumstances that can pop up. It's just overwhelming in terms of the stats it's it's sad that we as a society cannot come together and realize that the impact that this has is so far reaching there's such a huge economic toll and i know that our society is so geared around money and it's so capitalistic that it can't see that having millions and millions of people affected by an issue that they've scientifically done studies on that the economic impact of is like $122,000 over the lifetime of somebody who survived is, is, is the average in which somebody economically has burdened with. And when we put that into a giant number, it, like, you know, worldwide, it becomes this number that pays off the national debt like three or four times over. It's just, it's, it's crazy how much wow. the economic impact of this is. It's just, it's nuts. And it's it's one of those things that burdens so much of our healthcare system. It burdens so much of our productivity in terms of like all of our businesses. It impacts school systems it, to the level at which like I'm really convinced that schools are like uh, I, I went into school, uh, high school, and I started talking to a bunch of kids for a couple of years, uh, even before I wrote this book. And what I found was that there are so many kids that are dealing with this issue that I think that so many of the schools that are having performance issues when it comes to, oh, why are kids not performing in school, is that we have just turned a blind eye for some reason as adults to the trauma that kids are going through. It's not all sexual violence, but there's a lot of it that is sexual violence. And we're turning a blind eye to the fact that these kids are struggling with a really, really serious issue. So school doesn't mean shit to them. They don't care. They're trying to survive. They're in survival mode, you know? And it's like the impact that this has on our society is just from the deck plate on up. It's so crazy. It's widespread. There's not enough, you know, people in positions of power really with the will to do something about it, which is sad. Um, and as we've seen, I mean, just today, right, Trump was held accountable for, you know, sexually abusing and then defaming Ms. Carroll, right? Like, I was just like the journalist. And it was just like, so we have this dude at the highest level who, you know, I was actually surprised, to be honest, that he got held, that the jury didn't hold him accountable for rape, but they did hold him accountable for sexual abuse. I was actually kind of surprised about that, to be honest, but happy 
nonetheless that hey something something came forward in civil court it wasn't criminally he's not criminally liable at this point but you know it's just such a far reaching issue it's like it affects so many different things in our culture and so yeah i try to do somewhat of a job to really paint that picture for partners because i feel like the importance of understanding that is to recognize the environment in which a survivor is healing in right and that's like one of the biggest things that i feel like i could offer the the partners that are listening to this is that the environment that we create around a survivor is so important to their recovery process it is it's it really is kind of eye opening when i was been talking to a lot of therapists around about this book and you know a lot of them have read the book and they came to me afterwards and was like i never considered how important the partner was they deal with survivors all the time in their practice but they never like they never really considered how important the partner was but the way that i talk about it in the book is like if you had a physical injury then we can kind of understand pretty easily that the environment in which you're healing in is going to be really important if you have a if you break your leg you live on a third story apartment with no elevator and no friends or loved ones in the area and you're trying to get, you know, and, you, and the boss won't allow you to take time off or work from home, you're having to walk up and down those stairs, right? So the environment around that person who's healing from a physical injury is not the most conducive. It's not the greatest healing environment. Their leg is probably not going to heal as fast or as completely. Um, and that's obvious when we compare that to somebody who may live on the first floor with loved ones around that can help get food and water and get them into the shower and, you know, help them up and do all these different things and chores and all these stuff. And they just have to sit there and allow their leg to heal. So we can understand that from the physical side of things. But when we talk about mental health, well, the same thing's true, right? Like you're, you're, the environment in which you're healing in is going to have a pretty dramatic impact on how much and how, you know, well you are able to heal. And when we consider that, then we have to look at who are the people that spend the most time around a survivor in the most critical moments of that process hands down the partner we spend the, the, the most amount of time just statistically and we're also the ones that are going to help bring intimacy and sexuality back into their lives and those become incredibly critical moments to the healing process and very important milestones uh, when you start to re-engage that aspect of themselves and bring that back into the world because that's that's the activity that you know they were that that's this kind of realm of abuse you know and so when we're bringing that back into their life that's a very very critical piece and so you know that's what i just hope to be able to provide partners with is that perspective of environment right and that societal environment that they have to exist in the the way that society treats them as a survivor the victim blaming that goes on the the lack of care about the issue, this kind of seemingly just sticking our head in the sand, that's all a part of this environment that makes it feel even smaller when they're going through this. And so we as a partner have to play a pretty big role in at least understanding the larger environment, but then really getting down into the granular about the, uh, the environment that we have influence over. I don't know if it'll ever be the way that we want it to be. I think for especially sexual predators, we should have a specific jail for them. And once they go in, they don't fucking come out because especially sexual predators, they don't know how to stop. Just like with, you know, with that guy, he tried it on one friend, then it went to two, then it went to three. They don't know how to cut that out and they're sure as hell ain't trying to get help for it so totally there has to be some way yeah there's just got to be a way to hold them accountable if you know you don't want to be locked up for the rest of your life or wear an ankle bracelet or anything like that then don't touch somebody who doesn't want to be touched totally true and i feel like one of the big things that i uh, you know was kind of an aha moment in my research was the the lack of deterrence that we actually have, like when we really look at the stats around whether or not a rapist predator will see a day in jail is staggeringly inept. 
you know, I think it's like 97.5 of all, percent of all rapists won't see a day in jail. Even when accused and uh, often convicted, they won't actually see time. So the lack of accountability, as you were saying, is is absolutely crazy. And then, uh, especially when it comes to uh, the, you know, kind of a subset of this problem is is pedophilia, right? So the pedophiles. They get put into uh, a different place when they go to jail. They get treated differently by our legal system. Segregation. Like they, right. They get segregated away so they don't get vigilante justice in the jail yard. You know, like that's it's crazy to me to think that that's the level at which we protect these predators who are, you know, responsible for abusing sometimes hundreds of children. And they get protected at every level. And so when we talk about the idea of what a rape culture is and how do we approach it, how do we understand it, that's, that's one of the big critical pieces is understanding what are the systems of deterrence that are in place to help us prevent this crime from happening. And 97.5% of people committing this crime don't actually see really any punishment for it is, is nuts. I mean, can we, if we were to think about that in any, in relationship to any other crime, I feel like it would make people really uncomfortable to think that if 97.5% of murderers didn't go to jail for it, how much more murder do you think would be happening? Right. right. Like if 97.5% of people who stole cars never got in trouble for it, really, never had any real sense of punishment or accountability, how many more cars would get stolen? Like, so when we put it into that context, it's like, it's really easy to start to dismantle the myth around that rape culture doesn't exist at like a high level. And then once we break it down and actually look at what a rape culture is and recognize it's not just this phrase that was made up by the 1970s feminist movement in order for, you know, women to just dis, you know, disparage the name of good men. It's really a phrase that helps us identify the environments in which this particular crime and threat of this crime exists without no re without any real deterrent and you know we look at organizations like the catholic church there was an obvious rape culture present because the people in the position to do something about it knew about it didn't do anything about it didn't hold accountable the priests so they just moved them around we all know that Right. Even the people that I think would stand in opposition to the idea that rape cultures exist would still at least acknowledge that the priests were getting moved around like that's that's general knowledge. There's been so many stories that break that recognize that the Catholic Church had a really, really big problem on their hands when it came to not only the amount of pedophiles that were in their ranks, but the way that their authority was handling those cases. The same thing can be said for the Boy Scouts. The same thing can be said for all these different kind of feeder organizations and anywhere, because the problem is, is that the pedophile problem is so, so big. It's so big, right? We just had that uh, election where QAnon started this conspiracy that like, you know, the pedophile problem was these rich elite liberals like Hillary Clinton and George Soros running it out of a pizza parlor. And yet the real issue is so much bigger than that. Because, you know, the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual pointed out that there's, there's a 5% of all men globally are afflicted with pedophilia is the number that they, that they put out. And when you put that onto what 4 billion, 5% of 4 billion is, it's 200 million, you know, not that they're all actively out there, but that's a huge number, right? So what we could say is that any, any place that allows and grants adults access to children is going to have a pedophile problem. Like we can just say that blanketly. I feel very comfortable in all the research I've done saying that because not only is it the Catholic church, but it's every denomination of church because it grants access to these authority figures. It grants them access to children. So of course they're going to seek out how do I have access to children? That's why the Boy Scouts had a big problem. That's why all of these kinds of uh, sports organizations that deal with kids, uh, they have problems, right? And we just keep hearing these stories and these like one-off little things. But if we start to take all those little individual jigsaw puzzle pieces and start to really get a clearer picture of what's going on, 
we as a society, in order to like combat this, have to, at a kind of system level, create a way to audit the access that adults have to children in some type of way that protects them and identifies who the threats are. Because, and then once we've identified it, either through aftermath and, you know, people coming forward, we have to hold them accountable and we have to have some way of dealing with this issue. And it's so sad to see that we just live in a world that just seems to stick its head in the sand. It's like, we know there's a big problem, but no one really wants to talk about it. So we just kind of keep on going and just, it's so sad. It's really sad. Frustrating. It is. So frustrating. I mean, I can remember the Epstein. I was screaming at my TV. You have like 30 girls all saying the same thing. They don't know each other, but yet he was free to walk because money fucking talks. Yeah. It's bullshit. It's all bullshit. Yeah, it, it is. And I, it's crazy that it just, it, it exists at that high level and it exists in our homes. It exists, you know, it's like, that's what was crazy when I went into the high school is just realizing like how prevalent this really is. Like biggest issue, really. Like, yes, the big splashy ones, the ones that make that turn your stomach are like the the super rich, like the Epsteins who have an island that, you know, it's basically just this way to abuse kids and probably get blackmail on all these really rich, powerful people, whether they intended to be a part of that or not. Now they have it over you. And now, you know, so that's a big problem. Yet the bigger volume problem is the 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 neighbors down the street, you know, the brothers, the the uncles, the grandpas that have access to kids that have created an environment of fear in which the family kind of knows something. The teachers might have picked up on the kids change in behavior, but no one's really, you know, saying anything and it goes on for years. And that is, that's a huge, huge problem. You know, we got the foster care system. That's just another thing where it's like we audit access to children, right? Anywhere that adults are going to have access to children, you're going to have a problem with pedophilia. There's just too many, that's just too large of a number uh, to not, because that just addresses the men. That doesn't address the women who are also afflicted with pedophilia. So it's like, we just have a really big problem on our hands and, and, and just, you know, it's so sad to see that it's just such a slow moving process of progress. It feels like, you know, like I'm, I'm happy that people are talking about it. I'm happy that it's kind of become culturally aware. I'm, I'm a little sad that the Me Too movement got myopically targeted at the entertainment industry and not like a more broad uh, kind of concept of it because, you know, I think the Me Too movement got wrapped up in all of the like celebrities that came forward and all the celebrities are just in the entertainment industry, you know, and that's, and that's wonderful. Getting Harvey Weinstein out of here, fantastic very needed. But let's not pretend that the entertainment industry is the issue because that's not it at all. You know, we can't put the the blame of that at the foot of the entertainment industry because it's 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 just not. It's so much larger than that. So uh hopefully through, you know, these kind of conversations and and the good work that you do and, and all these other people, hopefully we can, you know, start to move the needle. But I hope so. <laughs> so when you asked your wife what she thought you did wrong, what did she say? Oh man. Um it was <laughs> it really comes down to not being aware of triggers. It was really that environmental piece, right? About understanding the environment that I create. Handling frustrations, handling, you know, disappointment. Um those types of things, because we have expectations in a relationship. It's just a natural thing. We we think it's going to go this way. And, you know, I I didn't have a lot of experience getting into this. So it was just kind of building the plane as I was flying it. So I felt like the biggest things that I guess kind of mishaps were not recognizing the triggers. And until I did, you know, I just kept making kind of similar mistakes, right? That were just lead to further kind of difficult conversations. Because I'll give you an example just so that it's not like so abstract. One of them was recognizing that, sorry, I have like many of them flooding my mind right now. I'm You're trying fine. to pick which one I want to talk about. Um, I'll talk about the one that I, talk, that I addressed in the book was around the conversation 
kind of the environment, uh, and, and this one addresses the entertainment industry, where comedians will make jokes around the Me Too movement and sexual violence, and they'll 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 find try to find some angle because it's topical, and they'll try to find some angle at it. And uh, you know, Dave Chappelle was one of those people. And one night, he, he you know, he, in one of his specials, he had a joke in which uh, he was talking about, I think it was something about how a woman had been on the phone and he made some joke about her being able to just hang up the phone and it not being that big of a deal. And it had made me, it had made me think. And there was some parts of, you know, later on in his special that were, that were funny. And I, I came downstairs one day and I was just kind of laughing cause I just like watched it. And she was like, you know, kind of asked me like, Oh, what are you laughing at? And I started to talk about it. But I started to kind of like give a version of his joke kind of similarly to I that I just did here. It's very out of context. It wasn't delivered in the way that he wrote it and all these things. But it just hit that I was laughing at a joke around the Me Too movement. And what I did wrong was I kind of like I engaged in that conversation from a place that was not a, from a place of empathy and like listening and a place of like hearing her perspective. And I engaged from a place of trying to defend comedy, trying to defend the freedom of speech. Uh, you know, and I, it was a, it was a horrible mistake. It was one of those things that I look back on and was like, it was a huge learning lesson. And it was just a big mistake because it caused a pretty big rift in that moment because I presented myself as somebody that just was not listening to survivors. It wasn't, it wasn't that we were, it wasn't even arguing about the thing. It wasn't even arguing about freedom of speech. They weren't, we had a roommate at the time who was also a survivor. So there was actually two survivors in the room that were involved in this conversation. And uh, I just did a really horrible job of really listening to what they had to say. And I was really dug into my own ideas and, and, you know, and I, being a veteran and, you know, I just, the freedom of speech, like it was one of those things where I was like in my own head, I was like really like adamant that this is really important. And it just tuned out really like what it was that they were saying. And the bigger piece of that was that it just created an environment in which they didn't feel safe to say what they thought. I was like being very just hard headed about my own opinions rather than recognizing that my opinions don't really mean anything in the context of somebody who's in pain and uh and needs to be heard and just feel feel heard and like listen to like it really doesn't in that moment it doesn't really matter you know like it didn't matter at all what the big global conversation around freedom of speech with comedy and yada it didn't matter I'm sitting here with this person that I care about. This is my partner, you know, a roommate who's also a survivor. Like what mattered in that moment was the environment in which I'm creating around their healing process. And as much as I at the time thought it was just this light little moment, like it was like, oh, it didn't really, you know, it's like for me, it just was this really big eye opener of how important my role really is even in those innocuous moments that I think are nothing, but that can create a lot of tension, uh, which ultimately in the middle of a recovery process can be pretty dramatically uh, harmful. And so it was like really a, an eye-opening experience to that was, is, was really recognizing, you know, how important my role is to, to be more of a, a listener than, you know, kind of interject my thoughts and opinions into the moment which really helped me in a lot of ways later recognize that the majority of what I do as a partner is just listen. It's not to interject my thoughts and feelings into it because they don't matter. They can't fix the situation. They can't take away the pain. They can't, you know, uh, go back in time and to before she's a survivor, right? Uh, it can't do any of that. It can't fix any of it. And so really what I'm here to do is just listen and, and be a partner, be somebody that's, that's fighting this trauma with you shoulder to shoulder and not standing on the side of trauma, like fighting against you in it, right? It's, we, we need to lock arms and, and join forces against this trauma so that we can get through it. And, uh, that it was one of those 
really pivotal moments. But I, I, you know, unfortunately, I had quite a few of those, uh, not exactly similar to those, but just kind of pitfalls that were avoidable. Had I known, had somebody, you know, told me about what this role is and how important it is and all this kind of stuff. And so that's why I really wanted to to put something together for people that might be in a similar situation, just to kind of have somebody else's perspective to say, hey, listen, I know you got your own feelings and they're valid. And, you know, but at this point, we have to prioritize, right? This is like an emergency triage moment. And we have to realize like what who's the most important person in this moment to heal? Like if we're trying to heal, this is, and those moments pop up out of nowhere, right? It's not like we have a crystal ball. So yeah, that was, I think one of the biggest moments for sure. So what did she say that you did fantastic? Because clearly you must've done something right. Yeah, it was, it was that listening piece. It was the learning. It was the, it was the, when I do something wrong, I, approach it with an open mind. I'm not afraid to apologize. And I actually learn. I'm not just placating with an apology so that you shut up and I, we, we move on, but it's really approaching it with a growth mindset. That's like, listen, I'm, I'm here to learn. I want to be a partner for you. I want to help you heal. So if I've done something, I want to know about it. I know it's hard. Growing is hard. Learning you've done something wrong is hard. Learning you've hurt somebody in some way, uh, whether small or big, is hard to hear. We get really defensive and it's difficult. And what's interesting, having come through it and, the th- and go through the growth process, is that it, like everything else, it gets easier the more that you do it. Um, and so the more that you hear, hey, you know, hear about something you may have done that that was just not like in a grand sense, like, oh, my gosh, you've hurt me so deeply. But like, hey, this is something that came up for me. You know, this was something that happened right in relationships. Boundaries may get crossed and nobody knew there was a boundary there. Right. So just in the identification that you have crossed a boundary, not getting defensive about the boundary cross and hearing them, knowing that they're not blaming you is a process that it, it it does take a minute to learn because most often when somebody tells you that you've crossed a boundary or done something that has you know caused them pain in some way, it creates a defensive feeling. We don't want to hurt people, and we uh, you know more often than not are conditioned to not take responsibility for things. And so that's like the default setting is like not take responsibility, get defensive, you know, uh, deny, deny, counter accuse, right? Like that's kind of the mindset we've been conditioned with, but it doesn't really work in a relationship like that. And so when I think one of the biggest things that she she really was very grateful for was my ability uh, to approach this process with a growth mindset that was just really willing to hear if I had done something that made her uncomfortable or, you know, just we found something, uh, you know, something in her in her growth process and her healing process that was like, whoa, this was a trigger. We found a trigger hearing that and then being like very, you know, calm and patient with the learning process and and recognizing that we're in this together. And so, you know, I think that that was probably one of the biggest things that I was able to bring to the table was just that mindset of, hey, I'm all into this. You know, I'm all I'm all into helping you recover. So, whatever I need to do to help that process along, let's figure out a way. Let's figure out a communication pattern uh and as we work through things, then we develop strategies to approach the moments that we know probably stand the biggest likelihood of creating negative emotional experience. Like walking into intimacy and sexuality is kind of a minefield sometimes uh, through the recovery process because it's just you don't really know. There's that side where you're trying to be adventurous and you know spontaneous, and yet um, in the recovery process, that can come crashing to a halt and uh, go into a very negative space in a matter of literally seconds. And so how do we approach that? How do we have a strategy for it? You know, where are the triggers at? And can you keep those in mind and have a strategy in case something happens? And so I think it was that that growth mindset of really being a partner that that wanted to learn and, and be get better and, you know, and have patience. And she was incredibly patient with me at the same time, even though, you know, she's going through her whole thing herself. So I'm, you know, just grateful all the way around. I think that, 
were there for each other in such a way that, you know, helped us grow and learn about it. Right. Well, I'm sure she probably didn't even know some things were going to trigger her until they happened. You know, it's a learning experience for everybody. So you guys might be sitting there laughing at a commercial or having fun, whatever. And then all of a sudden something happens and she's somewhere else. She's distant. You know what I mean? So it's like trying to figure out how to see those signs and work through them. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, I I don't know what next in terms of, uh, you know, content I can bring to your audience. But just in that line of things, I would say the most important, just in that kind of idea of like crossing boundaries that you don't know are there and like how to approach it is really about having a plan and a strategy in place for when it does. Because in my experience, and I, I've been in two now, I've been in now two long-term relationships with somebody who's kind of going through the survivor's recovery process in the midst of the relationship now. And not to say that everyone's is the same, but it, there are some similarities in the sense that, you know, having a plan is, is really, really helpful in terms of like what to do in the moment that something like big kind of comes up. And so I would say that the biggest thing in the book that I talk about that really helps people, you know, practically that you could walk away with is having a plan with your partner of what to do immediately when when the survivor or the partner gets triggered in kind of that worst case scenario moment that I say, like when you're in the midst of like a sexual experience and someone gets triggered, it is like the biggest emotional intelligence test I think anybody can be placed in. Because mm. we're like, you know, we're, 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 we're steering down this road towards this kind of orgasmic bliss. And, you know, we're in the kind of doing the one activity that's probably the most vulnerable thing I think people can do together. And all of a sudden it's anticipation of this really incredible happy moment and it goes somewhere incredibly dark very quickly and there's a lot of emotions tears are involved it can be a full-blown panic attack or ptsd reaction and how do we navigate that swing of emotions uh and how do we show up well i i really believe that it comes down to having a plan and having a strategy in place so that in the event that that does take place you just immediately focus on breathing. It gives you something to really focus on. And it's one of the biggest things I think that in any stressful situation, they tell you to do. And so in this one particular, it's really, really great to have that already ready to rock and roll so that in the event that it happens, you just start breathing. And there are many different breathing exercises you can do. I did the four count box breathing and we implemented that into our life. And it was one of those moments where it was like, once we implemented that strategy, triggering events were way less uh, stressful in the sense that you're not feeling all of the pressure to like do something, say something, uh, make it right as a partner. You're just breathing, reminding your partner to breathe, you know, and then once you both have kind of like gotten into this place, you're kind of breathing together, you're, you, you calm down a bit. And now we can approach really analyzing and understanding, you know, what happened from a, from a more calm place. I think that's so huge. And it does this other side of the benefit too, which is to help you get out of the arousal state. So not only do you like calm down the like crazy kind of chaotic emotions, but you're also dealing with the fact that you're still in this kind of arousal state. Like it was just this, you know, a couple of seconds ago, you were in this uh, kind of peak arousal. And so how do we deal with the disappointment, the frustration, the, you know, all of that stuff that comes up, the breathing just kind of does double duty there to help you kind of pull yourself out of that, pull yourself out of all the other emotions, give you something to focus on so that we can approach the kind of analysis point of learning about what happened and giving them an opportunity to kind of talk about what may have come up because it may be something really important that just came up that now they can go and approach with their therapist. Hey, this comes up. Now I can go sit down with, uh, you know, my, the mental health team and they can help process and work through that. But we're there to kind of act as a sounding board and a mirror to kind of help them bring some of that stuff to the surface. 
And that's why it's really, really, really important to understand that like, this is literally exposure therapy. Like, you know, in every other context of trauma and you're going in exposure therapy, like professionals are involved, right? Like you go to therapy for, you know, being a combat veteran and you do exposure therapy, there's a professional therapist there to help you walk through that situation. But not in this particular case, right? Like in this particular case, we're we're literally anytime that we're engaging in intimacy and sex, it's it's exposure therapy. And, you know, it gets easier and easier over time, but in the height of it, uh, the likelihood of it creating some negative experiences is pretty, you know, it's at least probable in my experience. I'm not going to, you know, forecast anybody else's experience here, but uh, in all the experiences that I've had, it's, it's, it stands a pretty high likely chance that at some point in your relationship that is going to come up. Um, and I think that, you know, this is just my own, I, this is not scientifically backed at all, but I feel like from an energy perspective, it really needs to happen. Like it's not something that should be like a f- scary or you should be afraid of. It's like literally a process of healing that needs to be approached with respect and kind of that that, that the honor that it deserves because it's something that that really does need to kind of come out. It's a part of that healing process. When you reapproach that mo- the, that activity that created that type of trauma, it's such an intimate and personal experience that it needs to come out. Like that energy and emotion and all of that a part of that healing process is such a catharsis and you know it can be pr- approached with that kind of respect i think that a lot of lot of deep healing can happen um you know it's not always the most comfortable experience emotionally but uh from my experience it is it's been really really worth it you know to approach it with a uh level of respect that it deserves we we've my wife and I have like gained so much from that. I'm sure this probably brought you guys closer together in a weird way. Oh, 100, yeah, 100%. Yeah, 100%. And it, you know, we we both wish it had never happened, but um unfortunately, we can't go back and 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 make that so, but we we do the best with, you know, the circumstances that we've been given and I feel like it it has brought us closer together in a lot of ways and um you know, the, when you go through any type of, you know, really stressful kind of battle situation, you know, it's, you just get closer. It's kind of like that band of brothers type of situation, like the same thing. You're just like shoulder to shoulder going through it. And then you get through it and you turn back and you go, Oh my God, look at what we conquered. You know, like, look at what we did together. Uh, you know, and I can be so proud of her, you know, she did all the heavy lifting and, uh, I was just there in a support role. And yet, you know, it just is like the trust that gets rebuilt because it's this crime, this, this, you know, sexual violence is like one of the most holistic attacks on somebody's humanity. You know, it, it just hits on every level. It's like the physical body gets assaulted, mental and emotional well-being gets undermined, spiritual understanding in your place in the world and cosmos gets kind of shattered. Uh, and it can be even more exponential, the more like deeply spiritual somebody is. Um, and, you know, economically, it, it impacts the trust, uh, their ability to trust themselves and trust others, the intimacy and sexuality of their life. And, you know, this feeling of agency and autonomy over their own body gets destroyed. And it's like, I, I can't think of another crime that gets perpetuated onto somebody that sh- breaks somebody down at every single level like that uh, at such a deep deep level. And so when we're trying to recover that, we just have to recognize that we have to approach this recovery process with that same holistic mindset. Like we have to be able to look at each one of those areas of their life and go, all right, are we addressing all of this, right? Like if we're really going to get recovered and we're going to do the healing, then we need to approach it with that same level of, you know, kind of holistic perspective. And um, that trust piece is a huge one. It's, it's so big that maybe kind of the silent one that no one really talks about, but it's a big one, you know, that being able to trust yourself and to be able to trust other people is huge. And the role that we as partners play in that piece is, is, I mean, I can't even really put words to how important that is, is that how we show up in every little moment in each conversation is, you know, making and breaking that, right? Like we're, we're building it back and, you know, taking one step forward sometimes and two steps back. Like I learned, you know, uh, with some of the situations I got myself into and, 
before I really learned like what was going on. And then once I had that frame of reference, now I can approach this in a much different way. And uh, yeah, so I hope that that helps people out there. I, I hope hearing that if, you know, you're in that space, just understand this doesn't have to be like a super scary thing. Like we can, you know, we can approach it and it doesn't have to be, you know, super long and painful recovery process. Like there's, you know, there's bound to be some discomfort, but it doesn't have to be a scary thing. You know, it, it, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And if I could you know, leave people with one last little piece is please look into rapid resolution therapy. It, I, it's one of the best modalities of therapy I have ever witnessed in my life. I saw it help my wife dramatically improve her quality of life. It's it's such a powerful powerful modality. It I credit it with saving my wife's life on multiple occasions. Um just to give a little context to that. My wife before we met, she had lost her sister to a drunk driver and that traumatic grief left her with a neurological disorder called functional neurological disorder. And it was a complete and kind of utter breakdown of her entire nervous system, left her having seizures up to nine times a day. She was in a wheelchair, wearing a helmet. She was like an invalid. She was having Tourette syndrome, narcolepsy, dystonia, all sorts of different kinds of muscle tics. And she was a patient of the Mayo Clinic for over two years. Um, they were trying to figure out what was going on. Everything that they did made it made her symptoms worse. Um, so no medicine, no, you know, modality therapies or anything was working and kind of like a hail Mary, her parents got her in to see, um, this doctor in Florida called his name's Dr. John Connolly. And he founded this therapy modality called rapid resolution therapy. And it utilizes, uh, neuro-linguistic programming and hypnosis and kind of a conversational hypnosis kind of thing. And it really helps the mind kind of rewire itself and how it's processing some data clumps around different traumatic experiences in people's lives. And she went for one session, two and a half hour long session, and she's been seizure free and symptom free since that day. And so, I mean, it's, it's huge. She did a Ted talk about it. Um, it was, it it was it's such a powerful modality in a lot of ways. It helps a lot of people, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of therapists all over the world learning how to do this, this, you know, modality, but from the space of sexual violence and recovery from, I am so grateful for rapid resolution therapy, just being able to help my wife through, uh, the assaults that she's, that she's been through. It's, it's, uh, it was it was life changing, and it it really did a lot of it really did a lot of the heavy lifting too. And uh, so, I just want people to know that it doesn't have to be you know scary. It doesn't have to be super long. It doesn't have to be like thirty years of therapy, sitting on a couch talking about it, and you know maybe getting some relief every now and then. But like rapid resolution therapy, really, it's it's whole purpose is to like work themselves out of a job so that people get healing in, in a very short amount of time. And so please, if you're, if you're in a situation, look into it. Uh, it doesn't have to be that you're recovering from sexual violence. They did, uh, the founder of it, Dr. Connolly, he founded the Institute for Survivors of Sexual Violence. They do pro bono work for uh, survivors um, so that they can get the help that they need. So a lot of rapid resolution therapists provide treatment through the ISSV, but it doesn't have to only address uh, recovery from sexual violence. But it is a it was a powerful tool in my wife and I's uh, kind of recovery arsenal. So I just wanted to share that with your audience as well. That's great. I have had a lot of different people who've been through trauma, and they started kind of their own journey same way. Either they became a life coach, or they did hypnosis, and there's so much out there and people be like, you know, I don't want to sit on a couch and I don't want to do it this way. You don't have to. There's so many different options. I know one girl, she does yoga for rape victims, you know, to help work it out of your body. Sexologists that will sit there and try to help you pinpoint. And there's just so many options out there. Don't do it alone. For sure. 
yeah, you got to have a team. Got to you got to get people around you. You know, we are a we are a tribal species and it is it is no more there is no more of an important place to develop a community than when, you know, you need it most. And I know it's probably the hardest time to reach out to a community, but it, it is it's imperative that you do. <laughs> For sure. Absolutely. I mean, in a sense your life depends on it. Very true. So where can they find your book if somebody is interested in buying this? Maybe they know somebody who's going through it and they want to take direction. Yeah, they can. Uh, yeah, SeanHamilton.com, S-H-A-U-N-H-A-M-I-L-T-O-N.com. You can go there. Uh, the links to, to click and buy it are, are on that website, as well as you can search for it on Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com. It is when your partner says hashtag me too, your role and responsibilities in their recovery process. Um, yeah, be grateful uh, for any contribution. We we give proceeds to the ISSV, um, so so please know that any 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 and all support that you give us, uh, we we help pass on to uh, survivors who need that treatment as well. So. Um, you can get it in print copy if you want a hard copy, you know, like a real book to sit on your bookshelf, or you can get it in the digital version if you want to put it on your uh, phone or ebook reader or something like that. That's great. I really love what you've done because it's so important. It really is. And you did amazing. So you should be very proud of yourself for helping her through this. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, it's been a. It's been quite a journey, and I uh, we're we're just getting started. To be honest, like you know, we got we we got one kind of one person healed, and now I just want to go out and help as many people as possible. Just you know, understand how, how you know how important this process is, and and get as many people you know out of suffering as possible. So I appreciate the opportunity to come on and uh, and, and speak with your audience. I hope uh, I hope some people got something out of it. Oh, I'm sure. I'm almost positive. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great story. <laughs> oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Is there anything else you wanted to add? No, other than just a, a big shout out and big thank you. I, I, I really do appreciate your time. And, uh, you know, I know that I'm sure you got people all the time coming at your podcast. It's really interesting. I mean, I know we talked about a lot about sexual violence, but I'm I'm super curious around your, uh, you know, a lot more episodes. I'll be listening to yours and on I, I don't know how if this is a tangent or not, but my my parents owned and operated a murder mystery dinner theater uh, when I was a kid. It was kind of where I grew up, and uh, so that kind of true crime and podcasts and mysteries. That's kind of like uh, it's, I'm I'm just super into it. So uh, I'd love to if at some point I can come back and we can we can talk about a whole bunch of other stuff that just isn't uh, you know in this sexual violence world. I, I I'd love it. Absolutely, I would love to have you back. Awesome. I appreciate it. Make sure to check out the podcast of the month on the Deluxe Network, and that is Feral Age Chicks. That's a bunch of girls telling you what they think about movies. And then you got Deep Dark Secrets. That's exposing the deep, dark fetish community. You're going to want to check that out. That's some pretty disturbing shit. If you know somebody who could benefit from this episode, please share it with them. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll talk crime another time. Bye.